Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name's Dr. Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with Nicola Holmes. Nicola is a GP in Coffs Harbour. So fun facts about Nicola is that she uh, loves teaching and she was a medical educator with uh, the RTO, and, which I trained with, and is now doing some education with the Black Dog Research Institute and won the award for the ROCGP OSCE when she was a registrar. There you go. <laughs> so anything you wanted to add to that? <laughs> um, no, I think um, I grew up in Coffs Harbour, which it's interesting for rural people to come home to their hometown. And um, I really like horse riding. So what's your highlight of the week, Nicola? Well, my highlight of the week was actually the rain that happened in our local area and we haven't had rain for a very long time. We actually bought water last week just before the rain and it enabled me to um, clear an entire paddock from fireweed by pulling it out by hand, which was impossible before it rained. So I spent a day gardening and pulled out, I don't know, maybe 15 wheelie bins of fireweed from a paddock and that felt great <laughs> oh excellent just pulling all those you know dirty weeds out of the ground is really excellent for the mental it's health so good for your mental health you can't stay cranky or grumpy if you're doing that i tell you <laughs> <laughs> so my highlight of the week was seeing nicola in her new headset headphones because uh, <laughs> we had a few technical technical things before we started the podcast and we had to do a video chat and Nicola has found herself a wonderful set just for us to to talk about and um, it looks very professional. So that's my highlight so far, Nicola. Made my week. I'm glad to be of service in the humour department. <laughs> we, um, we've known each other for a while, Nicola. You were... Um, a mentor of mine as a medical student and then was a supervisor in one of the clinical placements that I had um, in my training in mental health and also a medical educator when I was going through general practice training. So That's correct. I The thing I love about education is watching people sort of develop and grow over their career and really kind of like a flower blossoming. So... Um, I remember when you were a medical student, but um, I didn't. I didn't realise you'd come to this area. And the thing I remember most about meeting you as a medical student was your IT savviness. Yeah, like you had apps, apps for everything, how to read ECGs. <laughs> yeah, apps. I didn't. Don't think I had a phone at that time. <laughs> but now you've got a smartphone <laughs> with apps that you use to communicate with people. <laughs> I do, and a yeah. headset yeah. with a microphone. Um, so my experience in terms of your clinical skills has brought you onto the the podcast with me to discuss um, how to best manage difficult consultations because that's been a lot of our relationship has been talking with you about frustrating things that I've been finding in my clinical practice or the in you know things that I've been struggling with and you assisting me in, in working them out and there's been a few little seeds that you've planted a long time ago that I didn't really think much of at the time and you know didn't realize the weight of the words as as you say that have 
over the years I've gone, oh, that's what she meant with that side mm. of things. or And so that's been really helpful for me and hence why I've asked you to come on and talk about it. Well, thanks, Ashley. It's not something that is, I think, well taught, certainly at university level, but even in general practice, there's so much focus on the clinical, you know, the doses and the medications and making diagnoses, which is all obviously really important for a doctor. But I think there's a a much deeper level about the therapeutic relationship um, that really brings medicine to a different level and and I believe enhances the patient's health and well-being and in that therapeutic relationship because you're dealing with so many different people from different walks of life and we all have our own personalities and judgments and sort of core beliefs there's going to be times where you know it's uncomfortable in the consultation and and I don't think that our training prepares us for that so I encourage all um, doctors to, you know, pick their mentors' brains. We can all teach each other from our own experiences on this sort of deeper level rather than just the clinical level. Mm, Yeah, that's the art of medicine really, isn't it? And you need a good solid base of of science and clinical reasoning that you it almost comes kind of naturally where you can use those skills and merge it with the, the art side of medicine to enhance the consultation a lot. And it's, it's interesting that you talk about, you said the words, I believe that it improves the patient experience and, and, you know, them getting better. And that's definitely what we've seen in terms of the, in research about the therapeutic alliance, that people that have a good therapeutic alliance with their practitioner, whomever that may be, psychologist or GP or, or even um, an anaesthetist and patient perioperatively having a good interaction improves their pain scores after a surgery you know that little things like that um is is what we're kind of seeing is is actually true which is really cool I think yeah especially so in difficult consultations where sometimes it's not there's not as much medicine to offer and I think that's often the case in those consultations that are feeling uncomfortable for the patient or the doctor it's often in scenarios where there's not a clear-cut obvious answer um, and you're dealing with more um, ambiguity in terms of um, it's not as black and white this is the problem do this it'll get better so why don't we get started then in terms of the meaty meaty side of things when we talk about you know difficult consultation what, what does that mean I think that means to me as the doctor, one where you're feeling um, you're feeling either a bit lost or you're feeling a bit uncomfortable in yourself and it doesn't have that lovely sort of confident flow to the consultation. And there can be lots of reasons why the consultation doesn't feel like it's going well, but it's more of a sense that you get. Um, that things aren't working in the relationship that's in the room. And I guess in my experience that that pops up in different ways. So it may be that you look at the list for the day and, you know, there's there's certain things going on in your life where you're thinking, I really just want a day's worth of people coming in with coughs and colds and, and your list is is more complex issues that need 
dealing with that is going to be hard for you as a practitioner to put all your energy in on that day because of whatever's going on in your life at the time. So um, it can be in, internal in terms of whether you, you know, you're having problems with your relationship or you might have had a, a family member pass away or be ill of health or you might be ill of health yourself and be dealing with your own medical illnesses and then having a general sense of today's going to be a difficult day because I'm going to have to put my happy hat on and that's going to be hard. And then there can be times where it's specific to the, at the time, you notice at the time, gee, I'm feeling really agitated or gee, I'm feeling really drained or I'm feeling really frustrated or I'm feeling really sad and um, where is that coming from? And it, sometimes it's at the end of the day, you know, those days where you get to the end of the day and you go, wow, I need a glass of wine, is <laughs> probably been a day where it's been a difficult consultation day. And it, I've actually found recently that the days where I get to the end of the day and I feel like that is where I've, I probably haven't noticed or or been in touch with myself just to be like, oh, actually, here's some time where I need to spend a little bit more time and um, recognise that this is a difficult consultation from my perspective, whereas the days where I'm feeling at the end of the day, oh, yeah, that went really well. It's because, like you say, you've got that flow. What do you think? No, I think that's a great sort of um, summary that there's two big areas. One is where... separating out what's happening for you in your life, nothing to do with your work and not bringing that to your work. Um, And the other is when there's something um, happening in the room with the patient that feels um, difficult, challenging, frustrating, not working, being aware of that at the time consciously and then how you manage that to get the best outcome ultimately for the patient but also for yourself if you're in tune to your responses to people then it will make it easier for you to be an effective doctor yeah and there's this new um concept in healthcare of you know we talk about patient-centered care and quality-based care and, and that sort of stuff there's also this new arm that's coming in which is about the health and well-being of doctors and having doctors who are happy. So, you know, it kind of all ties in together, really. Exactly. Um, I was thinking when you asked me, actually about the types of consultations which can be um, more challenging and for the doctor. Did you want me to have a talk through some of those? Or yep. yeah. So, um, there's some kind of classic ones and some less classic ones I guess classically I think most doctors would find it difficult when you're breaking very bad news to someone especially someone that you've cared for for a long time for example you're giving them a diagnosis of a a significant terminal illness um and over the the time the sorts of things I've found that can really help with that type of consultation is a lot of silence and space, which you know me, that's quite challenging for me because I'm very bushy-tailed and talkative. Um, but in those consultations where the, the the patient is processing something really profound, that needs a lot more silence and space within the consultation and really just 
moving away from our education, give information mode to just being with the patient and just responding to their particular specific questions, particularly that first consultation, um, enables the patient to really get something that's on their mind answered, which is often a really different priority to our priority of who they're going to see next and how we move this medical journey along. Um, and it also just really respects this, the fact that someone is going to need more quiet internal space to take on news like that. So I find space and silence really powerful when you're you're dealing with breaking bad news to people. Hmm. Definitely, I've um, been exploring this in my clinical practice a lot lately is that idea of space and silence and, you know, really it, it's easy when there's, a, when there's a truncated end to somebody's phrase of talking, it's very easy to then jump in to give a solution or ask a question or um, offer um offer something at that moment and sometimes sitting back and allowing the space to open up beyond even the um the the time when it's comfortable for you because usually I've at least I've found recently the times when people feel most comfortable coming forth is when um they've had the chance to sit and think through their thoughts and then come out with what they they really want to say and sometimes that can be really uncomfortable to wait for a really long time to do that. I would totally reiterate that. Um, the most profound things people have shared with me in consultations have almost universally come at the end of a sli- you know, slightly uncomfortable long silence. Um, so, And that's particularly valuable in those sort of bad news consultations. So how do you then in the seat, in the, in the consultation, how do you facilitate extended periods of silence that are uncomfortable for yourself? What strategies do you use to, to help use that technique? Sure. I'll use in a consultation quite a bit of breathing strategies. So just that concept of focusing on your breath um, Sometimes I'll even, if I'm feeling a real pull to speak, but I'm wanting to create some silence to allow the patient to sort of be with that or feel that. Sometimes I'll even do like counting of my own breaths. The whole time though, your face, um, you're trying to have on your face a really open expectant expression like you're just comfortably waiting and you're anticipating that something's going to come towards you from the patient so it's kind of a little bit a little bit eyebrows up really open kind of posture and you're just listening um, with a belief that there's going to be something coming into it Um, yeah the the posture I found is really can be useful you know that having um, yes. your feet on the floor, yes. so almost grounding yep. yourself. Uncrossing your legs. Not nice and straight. Yep. Uncrossing your legs, yeah. Um, uncrossing your arms and having your either, as you would, your hands kind of palms up on top of each other or um, 
hands down on the thighs. I've taken to um, just kind of, you know, if you have your, your hands in a prayer position where your fingertips are touching, I find that really um, easy because then I don't feel like fidgeting because my fingertips are together and they're just resting in my lap. And then using, you know, just sitting there with, with breathing and something you taught me just recently, which is um, not trying too much yes. eye contact. You know, having a little bit of avoidant eye contact can be really useful when you're just sitting there allowing the, the space. Yeah, not having um, intense eye contact works particularly well I've found with adolescents um, if you look in the space between them or you sort of talking to the desk near them rather than looking at them um, that often makes them feel more comfortable and I think again in that silent time um, not holding a very intense eye contact just again just it's creating that space isn't it? it's not like I'm interrogating you it's I'm inviting you to take time to think and I don't have to know everything you're thinking but when your thinking comes to a point where there's something you want to share I'm here and ready for it um, how do you know when silence is the right technique to use well the patient will tell you very quickly if it's not <laughs> so they'll usually respond with the, again their voice their tone their body language like what are you waiting for or what do you think doc they they'll be uncomfortable and bring that forward with their body and their voice and then if someone was responding like that I would again respect that and I would you know say to them um, something along the lines of I was just um, giving you a bit of space for you to be able to think and then I would in that consultation shorten down my silences in response to that person is uncomfortable with a lot of silence so I don't think you it, it's very rare I'm trying to think of an example where silence wouldn't be useful <laughs> it is useful a lot of the time um, and gold comes after those silences um, it does, yeah. If, if you think of the consultation in these kind of little micro bubbles that sort of build up and then then sort of close and conclude, the, the trick, particularly with consultations that are, are not going so well, is to not rush it on, just to let that space between those points where it picks up again. And that's difficult, isn't it? Because I think... Um... The structure of medicine and, and how we are required to practice based on, you know, how, how things have been structured over the years um, leads you to trying to multitask. You know, you've, you're, okay, I've got to do this paperwork for this particular thing. I've got to write a script. I've got to write a referral letter. I've got to check that they, you know, don't need a pap smear or a mammogram or bowel screening or, a, you know, a, um, a blood pressure check. You know, you've... It can be really easy when somebody is not talking and instead of listening in the silence but to be clicking around on the computer and not actually being there. Definitely. Look, computers are really challenging in the consultation and I think if ever um, you're feeling uncomfortable as a practitioner in a consultation, the first thing to do is move away from your computer. <laughs> You know, it's a place to hide between, behind in a way. And I think 
um, a lot of miscommunication and missed important body language cues happen when doctors are just focused on that computer and multitasking rather than being present with the person who's in the room with them and really absorbing what's important to that person at that time. So why don't we discuss that a little bit? Let's say you've got a consultation coming up where it's often you're feeling stuck with as you're not kind of moving forward and there's lots of things to talk about in that in that consult as well where you know you've got to talk about results you might have to review some of your management plans you might have to talk about some preventative care or a letter that's come in and the computer will be a part of the consult in some way or you've got to utilize it at some stage but the you know, the patient's pulling you away in terms of feeling as though you need to provide your attention there. How do you then set up your consult prior to seeing the patient after the patient's come out in order to then utilise the that interaction more effectively? Um. I think it's important at the start of every consultation to provide a space for the patient to put their agenda, even if you've got your own separate agenda, which is discussing your results, et cetera, et cetera. And that's because each time you see someone, they're actually a different person to the person you saw last time. And you have no way of knowing what they're going to bring into that consultation room there may have been you know an unexpected death in the family they may have lost their job you know anything could have happened that at that point when they come in is actually much more important than finding out their iron deficient and that you want to follow up their iron deficiency to them in that space so I think by providing a bit of silence with a, a question at the beginning you know what would you like to talk about today um allows you to prioritize the time that you have. I actually really also like lists at, at, at the beginning of the consultation. So when you're talking about multitasking and having lots of things to do, where that t- tends to come unstuck is when you just spend too much time on one of many tasks that isn't actually the patient's priority or the important medical thing to cover. So if you can at the beginning open it up to the patient's goals and some after they've given you their agenda potentially with a bit of silence from you just checking in was there anything else you wanted to cover today and you can do that all very quickly without any detailed questioning or any sort of focused clinical questioning it's just what's the broad scope of their agenda and then if you have items that are really important flagging those so I hear that you would really like for us to cover this and this today I would also like for us to cover your iron deficiency and if we don't get time today that's okay I'll get you to come back for that so always having a space for priority around the patient's agenda I think is important with multitasking That's a bit different to the concept of being stuck. Um, Stuck consultations 
to me kind of feel like there's no movement. It's almost like Groundhog Day. Every time you're together, you're discussing the same things. Nothing has changed. There's no movement. You feel quite frustrated as a doctor, which usually means that the patient is also feeling quite frustrated in this stuck space. Um, A technique that I've found really useful for when you're feeling stuck is to come back to small goals that the patient can identify. So even moving away from your medical agenda to setting what's important for that particular patient to be tackling in the next week or two of their life. Like what's on the important goal list that they want to work on and doing goal setting Um, kind of exercises with them around a goal of theirs rather than sticking to your script of I'm trying to get you to um, you know exercise and lose weight more but getting the patient to set a goal so that they get some achievement in something that's important to them that can really help shifting a sort of stuck position where you feel that you're sort of butting heads and going round and round in circles. And the other thing that I've been using recently, which is I've found really useful, is is even going back further than a goal with people that are really stuck around lifestyle issues. Um, this can be addictions. This can be behaviours like um, you know exercising, prioritising their nutrition, prioritising you know, those pillars of sleep, exercise, nutrition, socialising that build strong bodies and minds, um, is coming back to their core value system and exploring that a little bit. And uh, you can do that through, uh, there's lots of online lists of values that you can get people to look through and really consider what are the values that are important to them and then working around goal setting, how can, how can you be true to these values and what can you do to build these up in your life? That's a really powerful way of shifting someone who's got stuck. I mean, I guess they're stuck because your agendas are yeah, different. That's what You're I was wanting thinking. them to do one thing yeah. and they're, they're not either ready to or that's not their priority or you've missed that they're sinking under some other big issue. Um, and it's kind of about coming back to basics of it's their life, it's their priorities, what are things that are important to them that if we could achieve them would improve their life slash health. Yeah. And you can usually come back to those core important things around exercise, nutrition, socialising, sleep, like really basic things. But Um, what's their core values and then how can they set little goals around those values which might be showing compassion this week to people. It might be, um, you know, um, trying to be more honest because that's something they value that they're struggling with. And if you can set some little goals around compassion or honesty, everybody's value system is different, but getting them to identify what's important to them and setting goals around that with them, that can help really shift stuck consultations. And that's, it's a really interesting point that you made. And as you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, if, if, you're, if you're feeling stuck, the, the patient's probably feeling stuck. And if you're not 
if there's goals that you've been working towards or tasks that you've agreed to do um, or that you may have set out for them or they've, they've thought about that they would like to do that then hasn't worked, it may be that you've missed the mutuality on the agreed goals and the agreed tasks. And so revisiting those regularly I think is super important and I think the really cool thing about values is it helps you to understand them better because we may have our own set of values that we want to share and help them cultivate but if we're not on the same page in terms of values with the patient you know we may have a value of we value their physical health or we value their um, mental health and we value their social health. But if the patient is really valuing and lacking perhaps in their spiritual health and we've completely ignored that because we haven't asked them about their what they value and what they want to cultivate in their own lives, then it's going to be really hard to come up with goals that match those and then tasks that relate to the goals themselves. I think that's really common in medicine. We're, we're kind of taught what to tell patients to do to achieve health. And so when we're doing our goal lists on our care plans or whatever, it's usually very led by the practitioner. You know, these are the goals you should be doing to achieve health. And um, it's not surprising really when patients don't do their homework or don't do what you're asking them when you haven't really checked in and involved a collaborative process that focuses on their individual goals and their individual value system to to develop that list. I, I think that's a common reason why things fail. Yeah. <laughs> us just pointing the finger and saying, do this and you'll be right, you when actually that's a bit con. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's very condescending yeah, exactly. and doesn't really um, appreciate the you know, complexity and variety of people that we're seeing and the stories they bring to us. Mm. And something that I think is really beautiful about general practice is that your understanding of somebody's biopsychosocial, social, spiritual understanding of themselves and the world and where they're at in, at a particular space and time, you get to understand that a lot more the more you know somebody over time and the more comfortable they feel and the more trust that they have in your relationship and and um, you as a and you as a doctor. And you know, if if you're not working within their bubble with them and you're kind of trying to push the bubble, but it's not supposed to go in that direction, it's kind of like the bubble pops, you know. And um, it, it can be really frustrating when I reflect on it myself being a very type A type personality person who likes to, you know, get things done and, you know, I don't necessarily have a goal but I'm often very task orientated and if I think, okay, I've got to do that, then I'll complete these tasks in order to get there. And, um, you know, when somebody comes to you from a medical when we look at it from our medical lens, we get this idea of, okay, well, if you're, if you're able to um, exercise for an hour every day, eat a healthy diet, um, get a really good amount of sleep, um, be really... Everything will be perfect. Be really kind in your personal <laughs> relationships. And 
you know, like you, you'll be fine. Like things will get better for you. And, you know, I think we then offer, well, the solution to your problem is, you know, to do all these things. And sometimes that list or that those sets of goals that we provide people can be really overwhelming or maybe not about not aligning with their own values. And, you know, they may kind of continue to see us because they recognise that, yes, those are things that they need to change and they do trust us or respect us, but we're not, if, if we're feeling like, um, like we're not shifting something in a way or, you know, getting a greater understanding of that person can then be really useful. And so I think the word that you use is, is curious. I was thinking that as you were speaking, curiosity. <laughs> I think curiosity of what makes the person tick, what's important to them, um, the trying to see through the lens they're looking at the world to, to be, then be able to provide more tailored and specific suggestions that might suit their set of values, their worldview. So being really curious about what is happening for them and help that helps you understand them and then that will tailor your advice to be something that's manageable. And again, I think patients often feel guilty or failing if they don't do what we've asked them to do. Um, And they're in quite a vulnerable position that they won't always challenge you with your advice or what you're telling them to do. But if we can tailor it in a way that's more appropriate for the individual you've got a greater chance of success yeah and I think the words that you used um we have given them is is really key in terms of what we're talking about here because it's about mutually agreed goals and tasks rather than yes yeah which is interesting isn't it yes yeah so that brings me to Another consultation that I struggled with for a long time and I had a really awesome realisation moment um, in one of our clinical supervision sessions when I was a registrar is that it it doesn't just have to go one way. It doesn't just have to be you being understanding of the patient but also the patient understanding who you are and where you're coming from. And I'm, I'm talking about this in terms of the consultation where you have to say no and I've found that really powerful to say to somebody, look, I really just don't feel comfortable doing that. That's really outside what I would normally do in my clinical practice. I don't feel safe or comfortable doing that. Or, um, look, when, when we prescribe things or do tests, we do get audited. And if we're not prescribing within guidelines or ordering within, you know, rational test ordering, then we actually get audited and counselled on, you know, ways we can change our practice. So doing this test or, or prescribing this medication, is it makes me feel really uncomfortable because these are the boundaries that I work in. Or Yes. And because I used to approach it as, okay, well, no, no, I'm not going to prescribe that, I'm sorry, because it's not, it's not good for you or, you know, it's you don't need to have that done or it's not... Um, in your best interests, and it was going down like a lead balloon. <laughs> I, had, um, I had one specific consultation where I had to talk with a person about um, their behaviour and, 
and that I needed to share what they were doing with with someone else. And, you know, I went through what we were taught in medical school or, you know, training about how to approach that type of consultation and the patient ended up, like, walking, standing up and leaving the consult. I was like, I I don't understand what happened. I, I went through all the things I was supposed to, you know. I went through the list and I said all the things that I was taught to say. And that's where it kind of came up in our supervision and and I got this advice from our, our supervisor to say, you know, talk about how, how it comes from you. You know, well, actually I'm in a really difficult situation here because I'm obliged to, based on what you've told me, I'm obliged to kind of take that to other areas and I'm really sorry. It makes me feel really bad but it's something that I have to do. I'm, you know, I'm sorry that it's going to affect you in a certain way. And it has blown my mind to approach it in terms of that allowing the patient to understand your context can be really powerful as well. Yes, and that when we're saying no, it's often as difficult for us as it is for the the patient in that you're, you know, you're, um, as a doctor, you're always wanting to help people. And when someone says, this will help me, it's quite a difficult Thing for us to not help in the way they want to be helped. So I think reflecting on how challenging it is for you and how you do want to support them, but you're also working within a legal framework, you're working within, uh, you know, a professional framework that makes that difficult for you is an excellent way of, of handling, a, I have to say, no consultation. Sometimes, though, I would say, um, particularly around when people are uh, seeking drugs, um, narcotics, etc., sometimes just the broken record of no <laughs> is useful. Um, so there are times, particularly if people are being aggressive with you, that sometimes just holding ground, anchoring in and using your broken record of, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. No, I'm sorry, I can't do that without engaging too much can also be useful Mm, and that's about I was just thinking as you were talking often when you you know when you say if if you're feeling uncomfortable about something that's the patient's going to feel that too they're going to feel uncomfortable they're going to feel frustrated they're going to feel tired they're going to sense in you they may not recognize that that's what that's where it's coming from but it's like when you have an angry patient or you know, a manic patient who they leave and you think, oh, that, I feel really happy now, <laughs> you know. Um, if, if you're, when you approach that situation, if you're really um, worked up about it, it, it can be hard. It doesn't always come off the, the way that you'd like it to because of that energy that you're bringing in. And so that reflecting on myself, I've actually found that a really nice grounding way because it makes me understand why I'm saying no as well and I'm really comfortable with that. I'm really comfortable to say, look, I want to do this for you, but, you know, in an ideal world, like I'd give you whatever you wanted and, but I really can't and I don't feel comfortable doing it because that's not the way that I was taught or that's not in our framework and it's so much more calming to do it that way and, and like you said, if, if, some, if there's agitation in the room or anger in the room and the best way that you can deal with that, you know, even having, sometimes it can be really challenging negotiating multiple people in the room you know, that you've got your primary patient and then, you know, almost like a secondary patient a if they've got yep. a support person or a parent or a husband or a child with them that's interacting. It's much harder to kind of negotiate more, more than one person in the room. Um, 
you know, being really grounded, like you say, and even if you have to repeat things over and over to get the message yep. through and stay, that allows you to stay calm because you're not trying to think and work, you're not working yourself up trying to come up with explanations for everything because it's, you know. Yep. I've got a, I have a vision, a, a sort of visual um, thing I use in those situations and I really do have this picture in my mind of an anchor digging into the sand and you've got the little boat up in the storm getting the dinghy getting frothed around up there and I just think my job is to, to stay grounded, calm, anchored and yes, sometimes just repeating the same thing. It also gives you space. You're creating a bit of space for yourself, for your mind, without having to think too hard because you're just repeating the same thing. Yep. One of the medical educators that we both know often said, don't just do sit there or something similar to that, the phrase. Yeah, yeah. Don't just do something. Sit there. (laughs) there. Yeah. Instead of don't just sit there, do something. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful just sitting and being. So is there any other techniques or um, situations that you had that you wanted to go through? Um, I think think addiction can be very challenging. So, again, when you've got – patience and this can be addiction to anything but self-sabotaging and making decisions that are making things very difficult for themselves and addiction falls into that category Um, I would use a lot of motivational interviewing in those kind of scenarios so again being really curious about what is the benefits of what they're doing for them and trying to really reflect those back to them Um, and exploring as much as I can so I can try and understand and it makes the patient think about what are the benefits of their behavior or their addiction or whatever the issue is that that sort of is self-sabotaging and then just asking what's not so good about it and reflecting that back and doing that sort of trying to weigh up in consciousness the pros and cons for them and coming back and revisiting that again and again, um, I find that really powerful when people are sort of stuck in their addiction or their their behaviours that are self-sabotaging, is trying to understand what's positive about them um, rather than, again, the pointing the finger of you need to stop smoking, it's good for your health and now you've had a heart attack, you have to stop smoking. Um, is, is trying to understand what are the benefits and how can we try and get some of those benefits from other things. And I think the, the key there that I've realised over the years, you know, all my, all my wisdom of my short time being a GP, um, is the authenticity is the key there. You know, it's not just about asking the questions, but it's about really wanting to know the answer. Exactly. Yep. And... It's- following it up with, you know, if you're if you're approaching it with, no, I really want to understand where they're coming from because I want to be able to see if I can help them in any way and you ask the questions with openness where you're actually trying to understand them rather than just asking the questions for the sake of asking the questions because you've been taught to ask the questions in that way. Yes, it's, definitely. <laughs> yeah. That's that's 
that comes back, doesn't it? I think in in any consultation that is a bit challenging, the 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 bottom line is holding regard and respect for this person as a human being that's in front of you, even if they're irritating, even if you're feeling overwhelmed, even if you're feeling lost, frustrated, confused. The person in front of you to hold this, you know, real regard um, and respect for them as a human being on equal footing, you know, I think if you can bring that to your consultations, it's it's a very powerful tool um, that people can pick up on whether you're sincere or whether you really mean it or whether you're just ticking the boxes, you know. Yeah. Can and you I guarantee? Think that's really- Sorry. I was going to say, can you guarantee your safety for the next 24 hours? Tick. You know, that's yes. not a very helpful thing to say to someone. Uh, <laughs> you know? What do rather, you mean by that? Yeah. yeah, rather than, you know, are you feeling safe? How can we help? You know, it's very different. Um, and they, yeah, or they, are you worried about yourself with yourself? Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 There's, you know, it's it's either a genuine concern or it's box ticking, and box ticking generally doesn't work from my experience. <laughs> so it's interesting to me how do you cultivate that because you know I remember say two or three years ago you saying to me, Ashley, just try and be really curious. Try and be really curious. I'm like. Oh, what the hell is curiosity? <laughs> like, what, what, I'm, I'm trying to be curious, you know. And um, I think that it, it comes when it comes with time. So I think recognizing that you've probably got to get to the point in your clinical practice where you're ready to to do that, but also intention setting before you see a patient. If you're feeling like, oh, then what what I found really useful at that is that time is to go, you know, what I really want to take into my next consultation is compassion. Yes. Or yep. understanding or loving kindness. I can't change this person in 15, 20 minutes. You know, that's not going to happen. Um, so what I can do is is be there and recognise that my life has been very different from their life. And I've been very blessed in my life in the opportunities, my parents, my upbringing. Whereas, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, you just, this is a really simple task or what, what you know, what is really good about smoking cannabis, you know, what is really bad about smoking cannabis? But when you get into that setting of, no, I'm really actually, I'm really lucky to be where I am in life. And if I look at the, the patient as someone who's probably been through a lot, how can I better understand what it means for them to be them and why they're doing the things that they are? That's where the magic happens. Yeah, and even listening to you then, Ashley, I think there's another question which is sort of an ethically kind of one around medicine is like is it our role or is it the correct thing to do for us to want to change people. Exactly. I, I think it's really interesting to realise that the ch- if there is to be change, then it, it needs to be very sort of patient-generated and sometimes just modelling and being ourselves and offering a space for patients to come and explore how their life is going and how their health is going 
by doing that, you enable the patient to generate the change and that if they don't, that's not our failing as a GP. No, like, yes. like or they're failing. Yeah, or they're failing. There are different lives and they all have different experiences, different values. It's really just our role to try and connect with people and impart our training and, and education in a non-judgmental way that might be useful pe- for people at some time in their life. Yeah. Yeah, and this idea of planting the seed, you know, I yes. sometimes think, well, how come I've been doing all this motivational interviewing and connecting and then there's this, they went to, you know, speak with their uncle and the uncle said, well, you just have to, you know, give it up or you just have to do this and that's the been the impetus for change. the change and you think, oh, do I just need to be more directive? And I think the answer to that is no because like you say, our place is a safe space where people can come in where there's continuity of care, it's a place where they can come, be who they are there and work through their difficulties and in the meantime we can do some you know, health-based stuff thrown in there and when the right time comes for that person to change and it may be because of what we do and it may be because of what somebody else does, then we can be there to support them through that too. It doesn't mean doing nothing but um, being okay that you don't have to be the impotence for, mm. some, for somebody's change or be responsible for what's happening in their life at that time. I really like the term sowing the seed too. I think you sometimes people will come back to you. I've had feedback from patients, you know, seven or eight years after I moved out of an area where I was caring for them, that that time made a profound difference in their life and I was completely unaware of that. So I think you you can't really ever understand how what you do and say can have a profound impact on people in improving their health and it might not happen till long after you've stopped helping them the impact of what you've done might really come to fruition and fruit Hmm. and it may not be the phrase that you thought would be the phrase exactly (laughs) yeah that probably takes us to our next episode so Mm -hmm. um what we'll do now is we'll finish off in terms of we'll round out what we've been speaking about today in terms of difficult consultations. So now is the time to add in anything you wanted to say that we haven't covered in specifically about difficult consultations. I think that was, I mean, there's, there's ones on my list we haven't, but it doesn't matter. I think that's good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so let's talk about our um, resource of the week. Okay, resource of the week. This week, I've been using a lot of the Head to Health website. So um, it's an incredible website where all the mental health resources are kind of pulled into the one spot. And it's very easy to search and navigate. And they've divided it up into um, educational resources. So patient information sheets on everything from OCD to how to not procrastinate and then they've got forums where people can talk with other people that have experienced similar things and they're moderated and they have um, apps and 
device support and then they have phone and online chat support for various different mental health conditions and it's an incredible website it's just head to health if you haven't been on it and played around with it um, there's a lot of free courses cbt type courses that patients can do it's an excellent resource so i have a resource that i'll talk about that's i didn't discover this week but it's one of my favorites and it's an app called beyond now and it's done by Beyond Blue and it's a suicide um, prevention tool. So it's when you're having suicidal thoughts to put down the, what the trigger things might be, what things you can do in the meantime before to allow the thoughts to kind of go and then, you know, your emergency contact numbers and what you're going to do at the time. So, you know, um, Nicola, how you usually get people to draw around their hand and do it on a piece of paper. Yes. Since I've discovered this app, which, you know, all teenagers and most people have a smartphone now, um, I get them to actually do this plan instead on their phones so it's there on their phones when they need it. It's called Beyond Now. That sounds fantastic, Ashley. Sounds like... Show you, yeah. show you next Monday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now it was great to chat, Ashley. Hopefully, it was. it's given people a, a few ideas, and if they keep that really open, compassion, curiosity, and respect, you can't really go wrong. So, thanks, Nicola, for chatting about difficult consultations with me. We're actually going to move into the next stage of the the podcast about how we can use difficult consultations to enhance our well-being or how we can support our well-being to optimise our consultations, particularly the difficult ones. So I really appreciate you speaking about it with me today and you can say like a mini goodbye because it may be that our listeners will stop listening for now and then come back in our next podcast and then we can just pretend like it's, it's been the passage of some time. Okay, well, thank you, Ashley. It's been um, really enjoyable chatting with you about um, consultations and the more challenging ones. And I'm hoping that um, your listeners, if they're in a health professional role, have gained some sort of food for thought. And, and patients, when you're visiting your, your doctor, if you're feeling a particular emotion, probably it's the same as the doctor is feeling. <laughs> and to, to think that there's always a way for the two of you to work forward and when in doubt, call it like say I'm feeling and whatever it is and that can often help move a consultation forward.